Church. We are here to help each other worship, live, and rescue like Jesus. For more info on who we are, go to cpmodesto.org. see everybody. Uh, if there's somebody new in the room this morning, my name's Kyle. I'm one of the pastors here, and if I've never had a chance to meet you, I would absolutely love to do that. Uh, we're going to jump right into the passage that we're going to be looking at today. Uh, so if you have your Bible with you, you can open it up if you want to follow along. There's also ones in the information rack, and if you're more of like a digital person, I'm sure you have it on your phone. You're welcome to follow along that way. All great. Um, you can turn to Acts chapter 9. We're going to be looking at verses 32 to 43. And as you get situated and get to that passage, um, if you've been with us over the last forever, it's been a long time now, quite a few months, um, we've been walking through the book of Acts and we're seeing how the Holy Spirit is at work in these first believers and as the church first starts to get traction in the world uh, around them. And uh, it's been incredibly encouraging, oftentimes very challenging um, and we've certainly had a lot to, to think through as we walk out of here by taking a look at them, and I'm so grateful that we're, that we're able to. And we just came out of a story that's probably like the most well-known story in the book of Acts, and it's the, the conversion of Saul, who hated Christians, who kind of had license to go round them up, throw them in jail. He was really, really angry at them. He hated them, um, and he had this dramatic encounter with Jesus, and it totally changed everything for him. He did a full 180 and he would eventually go on to be uh, the apostle to the Gentiles, to anyone who wasn't Jewish. And he really pushed that. So everyone in the room is not Jewish. We can say a big thank you to Paul for being obedient to Jesus. And so his, his uh, role in the book of Acts is a really big deal. And uh, we are definitely going to get back to him. But what we have today uh, and next week, and I think it might even be one more week. I'm not positive about that is the spotlight comes off of Paul. It's been kind of centered on him for a little bit. comes off of Paul and swings over to Peter. And Peter, uh, if you've been around, you may know Peter was a disciple of Jesus. He was one of Jesus's best friends. A little bit of a bullheaded guy, but really loved Jesus. And his growth trajectory is incredible to look at through the story of Scripture. And uh, he was one of the, maybe the only apostle that after Jesus' death and resurrection and the day of Pentecost and the Holy Spirit being poured on all these people, he stayed in Jerusalem. That's one of the things that we find uh, in this passage and, and from other parts of the Bible as well. He stayed in Jerusalem while many other believers and even many other of the disciples and apostles left Jerusalem, either because they were headed back after the festivals, because all those festivals were happening when Jesus' death and resurrection occurred. Um, Persecution also scattered all these people, but Peter was one of the people who stayed in Jerusalem. But what we find in this passage today is that he is finally game for leaving and doing a little bit of traveling. And here's why. I don't want to miss this. The setting is really important for all the rest that we want to get into and talk through today. So I'm actually going to rewind one verse to verse 31. Matt read it last week, but I think it really is helpful for us to gain a full picture of what's going on here. It says, so the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. So this is one of the very rare times, we're going to get into it more later, where the church is being described in the New Testament as like, hey, things are going pretty well. 
we have relative peace. People are good. People are still coming to know Jesus. Churches are multiplying. And this is the stage that, that sets Peter's next two interactions that we get to see. Obviously, either he felt like safe enough or it was just time or whatever, that it was time for him to leave Jerusalem. And what we find him doing is doing a little bit of traveling around to some communities of believers. And I'm certain he went to way more than is recorded here, but we have two examples of two different places that Peter visited and what went down while he was there. We're going to read through them together. Verse 32 says, Now Peter went here and there among them all. So we get the sense that he was traveling to these different places. He, he came down also to the saints who lived in Lydia. Lydia was about 20-ish miles from Jerusalem. It was a fairly important community. It wasn't huge, but it was kind of at this crossroads. Kind of these two highways, so to speak, would run through this town. So there was a lot of commerce. It was important. It would become increasingly more important later on. Um, and he went to visit saints. Now, real quick clarification. You know, if you hear that word, and almost certainly all of us have some cultural baggage when it comes to that word. You might think of like Catholicism, and these, these are like the super Christians that get stained glass windows of themselves. That's not at all like what the Bible talks about when it uses the word saints. When it uses the word saints, it's, it's faithful followers of Jesus. That simple. That's what saints described and describes throughout all of Scripture. They, they're just faithful followers of Jesus. And that's who Peter was visiting. He was going there to spend some time with other believers. And there he found a man named Ananias. Now, Ananias, um, don't know a lot about him, to be really honest. Uh, some people think he was a believer because he was attached to these, to these believers in that town. Other people would argue pretty strongly that probably he's not a believer because uh, he's not described as a believer, where in other places they, they make a point to say if someone was part of this family. Um, his name is Greek, which meant he was probably either a Gentile or a, what they call a Hellenistic Jew. So that was somebody who maybe was Jewish by heritage, but they didn't really adhere as much to the Jewish customs. They kind of more went the Greek way. Um, there's a lot we don't know about him, but one thing is made really, really clear in Scripture. And that's what it says next. He was bedridden for eight years, and he was paralyzed. Now, I'm really, really big on this. I hate it when we sanitize scripture, when we just blow past it like these aren't real people at real moments in time. We're all guilty of it, just the reality. How many paralyzed men do we read about in the Bible? More than a couple, right? And so it's easy for us to just blow past these things like, oh, there's someone who's bedridden for eight years, paralyzed. Whoa, 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 hold on. <laughs> at the heart of this, this is about people. So if we can just put our minds in that moment for just a minute, someone who couldn't move who couldn't even get up and was stuck on their bed. And when we think of a bed, you know, I'm sure we're all thinking of an actual bed. Like this is a mat or a blanket on the ground. This is not 2023 with all the uh, comforts that come with that. This was the ancient world. There was social stigma attached to all this. I am positive, feel no hesitation saying this, that certainly this man struggled to have hope. Even if he was a follower of Jesus, even if he was a believer in God, certainly there was moments where he doubted. And so he is in a pretty hopeless situation, a pretty difficult situation, and Peter rolls in. We don't know if Peter was introduced to this man. It says that he found him. That makes it seem like he was just wandering around. And, oh, there he is, and I'll take this opportunity. We don't know. But the Holy Spirit orchestrated this connection between the two of them. And Peter says to him, Ananias, Jesus Christ heals you. 
I love how straightforward Peter is. He's like, just in case there's any confusion, I just want you to know, second word out of my mouth, Jesus Christ is the one who's healing you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose. Immediately he was healed and he got up. And all the residents of Lydia, uh, or yeah, Lydia and Sharon saw him, there was another community, and they turned to the Lord. So just a run-of-your-mill miracle that we read about in the Bible, right? This man sprung up, picked up his stuff, and the whole town turned to Jesus. Par for the course. Peter's not done yet, though. Verse 36, there's another situation. It says, now there was in Joppa, which was another like 10 miles-ish away, there was a disciple, so this person was definitely a follower of Jesus, named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas, which is a very unfortunate name, and every middle school in the room is giggling to themselves. And most of the adults, you just wouldn't want anyone else to know. It's fine. But... Don't trash on Dorcas, because this lady was awesome. She is, she is incredible, like proto-Mother Teresa-type lady, all right? And, and we get a picture of that. So Scripture says she was full of good works and acts of charity. That probably just scratches the surface, because when we find later on in this passage what she was doing, it is an incredible service to a very marginalized and forgotten about group. What we find is, is Tabitha, or Dorcas, she was caring for the widows in that community. Now, you know, in today's day and age, it happens often enough where, where widows are neglected or forgotten or left behind, and that's an absolute tragedy. But man, at this time in history and in this part of the world, to be a widow and if your family didn't step up, it was almost a death sentence for you. There is, and we don't have time to go through all of it, there's a lot, but... There is so much pulling against you if you found yourself widowed and outside of like a family unit. And what we know about Tabitha is she saw this need. She saw this vulnerable group of people and she decided, I am going to take care of them using the skills and resources that she had. Some people think she was a widow herself. Either way, most people say that she had quite a, quite a bit of means and she sunk it all into taking care of this group of people. What an awesome lady. But... In verse 37, we read that in those days, she became ill and died. So good people die. That's not uncommon. And when they washed her, they laid her in an upper room, which was also a fairly normal, customary thing during that time. And since Lydia was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging, please come to us without delay. We don't really get to know their motivations. We don't know. I mean, she was for sure dead. It's not like they thought he could come and heal her. But we don't know if they thought, hey, maybe he could come and bring her back. I don't know. Maybe they're like, we just want you to see the impact of this faithful follower of Jesus and what what her impact has been on this community. We don't know for sure. Either way, I feel like it lends to the great impact that this woman had. The people are willing to travel all that way to say, you got to come here. You at least got to see what's going on. And so Peter, he does. He rises, and he says he went with him. And when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows that she had had impact in their life stood beside him weeping, weeping, and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with him. I get this mental picture in my head if you've ever been to, like, a marketplace before. Um, in particular, like, I've been to some, like, in different countries, stuff like that, and, and oftentimes, you know, they the salespeople are pretty, like, they're aggressive. That's what they're supposed to be doing. They're like, hey, look at this. Hey, look at this. Oh, mine's a little bit better than that person's. And even though it's like the same thing, stall after stall, usually there's a reason why you want this one, right? 
and they're a little bit in your face, stuff like that. And that's just like how things roll. There's no problem there. I get a similar feeling when I read this, not because they were trying to get Peter to buy whatever they had. They just so desperately wanted him to see, look at the impact she's made. Look at what she's done. Look how she has taken care of us. And so it, again, not sanitizing scripture, just looking at it clearly, trying to put ourselves there. It was probably loud. It was probably crowded. And this is what Peter decides to do. He decides to kick everybody out of the room. He puts them all outside, he says, so they can have a moment of peace here. He's in the room with Tabitha's dead body, and he kneels down and he prays. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes. When she saw Peter, she sat up. Wow, right? Like, that's not your everyday thing that happens. This was a woman who was dead, cold and dead. And Peter said, Tabitha, get up. She opened her eyes. She sat up. He gave her his hand and raised her up. Then calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all of Joppa, and many, pe- and many people believed in the Lord. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. So we have two miraculous encounters, like, like, re- like true blue, like miracle encounters that we get to engage with today. But here's the trick. Whenever you talk about miracles in church, it always gets a little divisive, I find, um, because... Uh, depending on how you grew up, what kind of like church tradition you grew up in, what kind of experiences, positive or negative, that you happen to have, this tends to be one of those things that makes us swing to the extremes. And I've talked about this before from here on positive, how I believe there are very few things in the life of a believer that we need to swing to the extremes about. We swing to the extremes about Jesus' death, resurrection, and he is the only way to life. But there is a ton of other stuff that Jesus himself, when confronted by people who are trying to trap him, said, you know, they would say things like, hey, do you fall in this camp or this camp? Should we do this or this? Trying to, trying to mess him up. And Jesus, I love his response. He's like, no, I'm not going to pick a side. Actually, would like to present a third way, and I'd like for my followers to take that. I think this is a really good example because there are times where, depending on your background and where you've come from, if you maybe lean more and a little more on the uh, like charismatic, supernatural side of things, you have, you're bent this way, you're kind of like, have had some of those experiences, you might read something like this and be like, well, let's go walk through the graveyard and see what happens. That's a, that's a gross extreme, right? Or on the other side, you're like, listen, man, I, Sure, miracles probably happened. I know that my whole faith hinges on a guy coming back from the dead, so I believe that, but, like, it's 2023. That stuff doesn't happen now, right? Like, hasn't all that been proven that most people are just trying to make money off of that stuff? Again, two massive extremes. Reality is probably all of us fall somewhere in the middle. I think what would be a shame would be for us to waste a bunch of time trying to work through all that and miss the point that I believe God has presented to us today. Here's the reality. This is not up for question or debate. Both of those things happened. Those miracles happened. Someone got up and walked. Someone came back from the dead. We ser- and that's not the only place in the Bible, obviously. We serve a God of miracles, a God who is capable of the miraculous. It was true then, and it is true now. So let's not debate that. Whether it's somebody getting up to walk, someone coming back from the dead, a teenager who is absolutely buried by their anxiety, finding peace in Jesus, 
a purposeless person finding their ultimate purpose in life, an addict being freed from their addiction, a really hard heart being softened by the Holy Spirit. God is a God who works in miraculous ways. We can argue all day long about why or when or what's valid. I'm not sure that that's the best use of our time. I have had, an exp I had experience with my sister who had autoimmune disease and had a really, really hard go in her younger adult years. And people prayed for her and prayed for her. And people said, if you have more faith and continue to pray for her, she'll be healed. We boldly prayed for her healing. She died with all of her issues. And I've also seen someone laying on the street be prayed for by someone. They stood up and they walked away and they couldn't have before. So who's to say one is valid as one is not? Who's to say there's some special combination that we can unlock to be able to experience the miraculous? Can we just settle in this place of saying, we serve a God of miracles and I trust him however he wants to roll that out. Because if we can do that, I think there's something actually deeper here that is maybe more impactful for us as we walk through this. So if we can do that, here's what I want to do. I want to not focus so much on the miracles themselves, although impressive and amazing. Instead, I want to pull the lens out just a little bit, and I want us to, to take a look at this from a bigger picture view. And I want to look at the setting that these miracles occurred in, like what was going on when these interactions happened, and what was happening during them. I think these two, looking at it from these two perspectives, have some very pertinent, very purposeful stuff to say to us this morning. So the first, the first thing we need to, to recognize or ask the question, what setting do we find these encounters in? And it's unique. It's different than many of the other places in Scripture where we see God do miraculous things. And we find the answer to that by going, again, back to the passage that we read uh, this morning in verse 31. The backdrop of these two miraculous moments is the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria being in a place of relative peace. Things were going fairly well in the church at that time. This is not common in the life of the church, certainly not common in the book of Acts. It wasn't a few chapters ago, and it won't be a few chapters from now. But we have this very unique slice sandwiched in between these two really popular stories. These are the ones that show up in the storybooks. Paul, or Saul becoming Paul and, and having the scales fall out of his eyes and him becoming this champion for the Gentiles. And then next week, we're going to see how, how God opens Peter's eyes and the sheet is, is lowered down and, and Peter finally gets on board that this gospel is for all people. And in between these two big, big moments, we have this seemingly kind of strange seemingly transitionary couple encounters. So I'm a millennial, and so I most of the time think of things in movie terms. I don't know. I just, we, we watched movies growing up, all of us, right? And so when I think, oftentimes I read the Bible, like my mind jumps to like, how would this work like in a movie situation? And when I think about what's going on in this passage, you know, Saul becoming Paul, that's like, that's a big moment in the movie of the, the, the epic saga of the Acts of the Apostles, right? That's a big one. You put that stuff in trailers because you want people to like be interested in what, what movie you're doing. And then the story of Peter that we're going to get into next week, again, that's like a big, big moment. And when I'm thinking about it in that way, I, my mind kind of was drawn to this idea. And I hope this metaphor is helpful. I, I have found it helpful anyway. 
that if this, you know, there's a big moment over here and there's a big moment over here, the passage that we just read kind of feels like B-roll to me. And if you're like, I'm not a movie person, I don't even know what you're saying when you say B-roll. You've experienced it. You experienced it this morning, actually, in that video about Ukraine. There was, there was Phil actually talking, and that was like the, the primary footage. That was the primary way of communicating what was going on there. But then there was a whole bunch of shots of uh, the places that they were working, the kids, um, that connected each of those like main points, right? You understand what I mean? And so we've all experienced B-roll, and we, we experience it in TV shows, we experience it in movies, and the reality is there is some really good B-roll that really helps the narrative move forward, and there's some really bad B-roll. And let me give you an example. Um, do we have anybody in the room who enjoys like procedural dramas, like your like firefighter shows and police shows and no, we're not, we're, not, we're not into that, like, participating today or whatever. All right. Um, there's one show that Megan and I used to watch all the time called White Collar, and it's basically this guy who was, like, a criminal. He would steal, like, art and stuff, and then he, like, he had to pay his penance by working with the FBI to solve all these white-collar crimes, right? And uh, it's set in New York City, and it was one of those shows where, hey, they're... <laughs> They can somehow get all the way across New York City in like two minutes. You know how those shows go, or time doesn't count in a lot of those shows. And so they could get across all the, and all they would need is a short little three-second shot of B-roll, and it was always the same kind of thing. It was like, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about here. It was like a slightly sped up shot of like a national monument or, or like a, a, something you would see when you go to New York, like the Statue of Liberty or Central Park or whatever. And it was totally worthless, absolutely worthless. It didn't help the story at all. It was poorly shot. And also, you started to notice the more we watched the show, we're like, I think that they keep recycling these. I think they just keep reusing them time after time after time. And you're like, this is absolutely worthless. This is only here to transition from one important thing to the next important thing. That's bad B-roll. We watched something like we watched this morning, and the B-roll that we got to see, those shots of those churches, those shots of those kids, that actually supported what it was trying to be communicated, right? And here's, here's what I guess I just can't get away from. When I think of where the church was at during this time, it really does feel like, like, a, like a shot of B-roll footage. And the more I consider that, and the more I think about that, the more I find we might be in a similar situation. We live in a time that has been exclusively marked by peace and ease for being a Christian. I don't even feel like I need to like make qualifiers about that. We live in what I would call very much like a B-roll section of footage in the grand narrative of the church. The reality is most of the church in the world today and throughout history has been set against the backdrop of persecution, has been set against the backdrop of difficulty. And we have dealt at length with reevaluating our views as, of suffering as not being like the end-all, be-all, worst thing we could ever endure, but that God actually can use that to do incredible, incredible things. But the reality is that we in this part of the world in this time in the world, I just feel like we cannot really understand what these people were going through. It just has not been our experience. We don't got to feel bad about it. We just got to acknowledge it. 
That has not been our experience. There's not a single person in this room who has had your home raided by police because you love Jesus. None. There's not a single person who had to sneak into this building today because if you got caught coming in the doors of a church, they'd drag you off to jail. Not one. There's not a single person who should be worried about getting jumped in the parking lot and beaten to a pulp on your way to your car after the service because you were here. None. We have so much freedom, so much opportunity. No one is limiting your ability to talk about Jesus. You can argue that. I would disagree. I don't think there's anybody limiting that. You're not going to get fired from your job for showing the love of Jesus to a coworker. Now, there may be jobs where they don't want you to talk about it, but I have never heard of a boss being like, man, so-and-so is really, really loving and caring, and they care about this person as a person. They need to get fired, like, right now. We have so much availability. We have so much freedom. The question is, are we using it well? Because it is not the norm. It has not always been the norm. It will not continue to be the norm. I don't know how long this section of B-roll we're living in in this part of the world and this time will go on, but we know as we look to the future and the return of Jesus, things are only going to get more and more difficult for the church. And that's okay. That's part of it. The question I think we got to ask ourselves today is if you can accept the idea that we are living in some B-roll footage, are we using it well or are we squandering it? I think it is a very real temptation for each and every one of us when things are easy, to let stuff slide and then look back years and say we wasted it. I think there's some truth to the statement. I hesitated even saying it because it inflames people. <laughs> but I think there's some truth to the statement um, that soft times have a tendency to make soft people. And depending on like what side of like the news or politics you're on, you've heard that before and they always have a lot of reasons why it's the other side's fault that we're in this situation. Let's ignore all of that and just take that term for what it is. Soft times tend to make soft people. I've experienced this for myself. And this is, I'll just, I will say this from my own experience. This isn't casting judgment on anybody else. I'm 36 years old. I was born in 1986. I have lived through some very easy decades in my lifetime. There's been a few hard things, but I mean, late 80s and through the 90s, pretty cushy situation, right? Not a lot of like overarching hard things. So me and my contemporaries, my peers, people around my age have not really had to deal with massive, massive difficult things. And I'll be really honest with you, people my age, we did not fare well during the pandemic. We let a lot of stuff divide us. We parted ways over nothing. We gave up on relationships and church relationships. And yeah, I mean, some of that exists here in this place, but I, I've experienced this for my friends from all over the country that I'm still connected to. We did not fare well. Some of the older folks, you fared incredibly well because you're like, yeah, I've been through a bunch. This will pass. But I was amazed to see some of our younger people fare so well with such resilience through this. But a lot of people my age, we didn't do so hot. And I think that it just showcases the point that like, if we don't have to deal with really hard things, of course we're not gonna be able to deal with hard things well, unless we're really, really intentional. We experience this in life, you only rise to the bar that's set for you. But here's what I think we gotta be really careful of. 
We cannot allow that to be true of the church. We're in an easy time. We cannot allow ourselves to get complacent. We're in a soft time in the life of the church. We cannot allow ourselves to be soft. We cannot waste our B-roll. So what do we do? I'm so grateful that I got assigned, literally assigned this passage of Scripture. I didn't even, I didn't even pick it. It was just one that they're like, hey, can you do these couple ones? And I was like, yeah, that's great, sure. Because this, I believe, gives us some, like a glimpse into how we can live our lives in times of relative ease and comfort and peace so that our B-roll counts and is worthwhile. I cannot identify with getting run out of town, people throwing rocks at me. I cannot identify with getting on a boat and going across an ocean and being like, I don't know if I'll ever see you again, family. Hopefully you do well. I can't identify with that. But man, I can identify with people who are living in a context where, hey, things are going okay. How do I remain faithful to Jesus in that? How do I make it count? And I think we see a few trends in these two interactions, in these group of believers uh, that we can absolutely cling to to make sure that our B-roll season of life is consistent and it matters. The first one is this. When we open up this story, we don't see Peter going on vacation. We don't see him going to the lake, the Sea of Galilee to, you know, do some fishing like in the good old days. We see him hard at work in this opportunity that was given him uh, in this time of peace. We also see the saints in Lydia already hard at work. We see Tabitha in Joppa already hard at work. We see people being consistently faithful. And man, that is what we're after. We've talked about this a lot. Like at the end of it all, when we see Jesus face to face, he's not going to look at us and be like, hey, well done, good and rich servant. Hey, well done, good and influential servant. Hey, well done, good and morally sound servant. We know the verse. It's well done, good and faithful servant, that you are true to who Jesus has made you to be. We see that in the lives of these people. They were consistently just doing the things that they knew that they should do. It wasn't like Peter rolled into town in Lydia, and they were like, oh, yeah, we should probably get working on stuff. They were, they were doing it. It's not like when he rolled in to Joppa that he just started something. He just brought someone back from the dead so she, keep, so she could keep doing what she had been doing. Both of these scenarios were marked by consistent faithfulness. And here's the problem for us, I find, is that when we have a lot of time, when we have a lot of ease, and we have a lot of margin, we tend to fill that time, not always with consistent faithfulness, but oftentimes more justification for unfaithfulness. I have a lot of people in my life that I know, and granted, most of them live in other places in the world. This is, this is true all over, but these are just people I know who have no time, whose life is very hard. Like, it just is like a difficult slog every single day. But they have, they have structured their life so that they are consistently doing the things that Jesus has told them to do. I have friends in Honduras who get in a truck three times a week and take food to people on the streets. I have a sister-in-law in Haiti who treks up the mountain every few days to deliver food, who goes to the prison once a week to talk to these people. They are putting consistent patterns of faithfulness. We see it in Tabitha, consistent patterns of faithfulness. And then I think of myself, with all this time, all this control, 
and all this comfort, and I struggle to get up in the morning to make sure that I'm reading the words that God has so clearly written out for me. I struggle to make prayer a priority. I struggle to to show up when I need to show up for my family or the people around me. And I always have a thousand reasons why, and I bet you do too. Oh, things are busy. I'm not sure if I can do that. No big deal. We make excuses. We make justifications. Certainly, there's a ton of like modern examples of that, but my mind jumps to an old one in the Old Testament. The story of David and Bathsheba, you probably have heard if you've been around the church. David was an awesome guy who had a passion and desire for Jesus, or I mean for God. He didn't know that God was also Jesus, but he had this real passion for God, and he wanted his life to be a good reflection of God's heart. And when he was on the run from people who were trying to kill him, man, he was never closer to Jesus, or to, man, to God, sorry. But then time goes by, and he starts to get a lot of power and a lot of wealth, and he starts to get a lot of time, and all of a sudden we find him on the roof of his palace when he should have been doing something else, making compromise after compromise that led to an affair with a married woman and then an orchestrated murder of her husband. And he had all these reasons why this is not a big deal, all these reasons why every compromise was not a big deal. See, I think if we want our time of ease, our time of comfort to be worthwhile, we have to make sure to consistently cling to the things we know breed faithfulness in our lives. We've talked about them. Prayer, fasting, meditating on God's word, giving, going. There's people who show up here every week, and there's tons of people in this church who are, who are faithful. There's people who show up here every Monday to make food to feed people. There's students who come every Wednesday to go reach out to uh, refugees at Days Inn. There's moms in this congregation who drop in on each other to make sure that they're doing okay because being a mom's really hard. There are people who gather all the time to pray specifically for this church and what God is doing. There are tons of examples of consistent faithfulness. We have to commit ourselves to it if we want this easy time in our life to matter. Second thing, second trend I see in these interactions is there's just a ruthless imitation of Jesus going on here, especially from Peter. Um, If plagiarism of miracles was a thing, uh, Peter for sure would be guilty of it. Because these two interactions that he has, they might feel familiar to you. That's because like word for word, they're the exact same things that Jesus did. You may recognize the story when when, when Peter uh, heals this man who is paralyzed. It's like word for word, exactly what happened in Mark chapter 2 where you might remember the story, the, the, the four friends bring their paralyzed friend to Jesus, and it's really packed in the house, so they break a hole in the roof and lower him down, and Jesus takes the opportunity to teach about how he can forgive sin, and he says the exact same words, get up, pick up your mat, and go. And Peter's like, well, if it's good enough for Jesus, I guess it's good enough for me. I'm going to say the exact same thing. The situation with Tabitha is no different. There's a moment in Jesus' ministry where a man named Jairus came to him and said, my daughter's sick, and Jesus said, I'll come and heal her. He gets sidetracked helping somebody else, and they find out this girl died. It's done. There's no turning back. Jesus goes to a crowded upper room, kicks everybody out, kneels down, prays, and says almost verbatim the exact same thing to her. Little girl, get up. What I love here is we see this picture of Peter that is just so like a dog with a bone, like trying to model his life exactly after 
Jesus' life. Imitation is such a theme in Scripture because really it's not about us, right? We imitate Jesus. Paul says, if you can't imitate Jesus, well, at least imitate me as I imitate Jesus. There's tons of people in our lives that are examples of how Jesus has lived his life. And there's so much even practical stuff that Jesus said to do that we can word for word take into our lives and live out outside of these walls. And sometimes I think we make it complicated because we don't actually want to do it. Like, yeah, but did he mean exactly that? Like, would he actually have me give up everything? Like, should I actually speak that, like, forcefully about these issues? And we, we give our, we water it down a little bit and we, we find loopholes. But man, what would our life be like if we were ruthless imitators of Jesus? I have an example in my life that I think back to all the time. Uh, it's a man named Cyrus, and he's from Myanmar. And I got to go to Myanmar a number of years ago, uh, way before everything fell apart like, like it is right now. It's a really rough place right now. And it was during a time of relative peace and ease. And this guy named Cyrus, he was from like a rural part of the country, and he moved to the big city, to Yangon. It was the capital at the time. And he had a pretty easy deal. He was a Bible professor at a Bible college in Myanmar. So things were looking up. But he didn't count that as why he was there. He didn't count that as the most important thing he was doing with his life. Him and his wife had this ministry, and I hesitate to even call it a ministry like from an organizational place, but man, it was a ministry of the heart for sure, that opened their home up to kids who needed to come there. And this is how it went down. Oftentimes in those rural areas in Myanmar, there's not enough food to go around. And some, so sometimes parents in desperation, they'd take their kids, they'd stick them on a bus, and they'd send them to the city and hope that someone would take care of them. No communication, that's just the best they could do. It's the best they could hope for. And so the Holy Spirit obviously like orchestrated the meeting of Cyrus and the first two kids that were there. Two kids showed up on his doorstep and said, we have nowhere else to go, will you take us? And the way Cyrus tells the story is he says, my mind instantly jumped to those words that Jesus said, let the little children come to me. He's like, how could I do anything different? He's like, I want my life to look exactly like Jesus. When I went, when I went to visit him, he had like 20 plus kids in their tiny little house and they were teaching them skills and they were getting them set up for success. And when, when everything fell apart, he took those 20 plus kids, however many there were now, and he ran to the mountains. I haven't heard from him since. I don't know what he's doing, but I'm very, very sure that he is still ruthlessly imitating his life after Jesus. We have to do that too. We cannot mess around when it comes to that. So when Jesus says to care for someone, we care for them. When Jesus says to give up something, we give it up. When Jesus models a third way, we take the third way because we are ruthless in our imitation of Jesus. Last one is this, and we're going to be done. Is Like so many stories in Acts, the story ends with people coming to know Jesus. That when God showed up to do a miraculous thing in these people's midst, they were instantly ready to tell people exactly why it happened. Like the Holy Spirit's the one that drew these people's hearts to him, but you better believe that the first words out of Tabitha's mouth were like, hey, back from the dead, would you like to know why? His name is Jesus. Ananias, whether he became a believer or not, we don't know for sure. But as he went through town and they're like, wait, weren't you paralyzed? Haven't you been in a bed for eight years? He'd be like, I don't know, man, but some guy told me Jesus Christ healed me. Like when God shows up to do miraculous things, the follow-up was always an opportunity for people to respond to the gospel. How often is that true of your life, of my life? When God does the miraculous, it's my first instinct to be like, who needs to hear about this? How do I turn this into an opportunity for someone to respond to this life-changing gospel that I'm living out? 
I'll be honest, for me, most of the time, it's like, man, I'm really glad. It makes my life easier when God shows up and does something. When he moves in a miraculous way, I'm so pumped about that. How often do I instantly transfer that over? Megan's dad is an excellent example to me of this type of person. The guy is just always looking for a way to take every single thing he does, especially the stuff where God shows up, and thinks, how can I share this in a way where someone else can respond to the truth I've experienced, to the power I've experienced? It's almost irritating how often he can do that. It's like, I thought we were just out for a hike, man, but you're seeing like the miraculous in this moment and you're turning it into an opportunity for people to respond. I think that's how we gotta live our life. I think the reality is, and I'll end with this, if you can accept that we might be living in a very unique, in the grand scheme of eternity, short period of time, where things are really easy for us and we have a ton of opportunity, if you can accept that truth today, I think we have the responsibility to ask the question, how am I using it? Because to people who have been given much, much is required. If we, can, if we are willing to accept that we live in some B-roll season of footage, are we making sure that it connects what God has done to what he's doing right now to what he's gonna do forever? If we're going to do that, if we want that to be true of us, of our church, we have to commit ourselves to faithfulness, which is not flashy, probably won't land you on a stage or a platform, but it's just consistent faithfulness to what God has told you to do. That we would be ruthless imitators of Jesus in what he says and how he treats people and what he does. And that when God does the miraculous, which we can count on him doing, that we are quick to give an opportunity for people to respond. Because our words are one thing, but if they see God do something miraculous, why in the world would we not take advantage of that? I just have this deep sense, and I feel like it's a burden, and, and I, don't, I don't want this to come across like, like a spanking or something, or like, a, like you should all feel bad about yourself about this. No one asked to be born in this time, in this place. This is where we are. But are we using it well? I think that's a question we got to grapple with. And we got to make sure that as we live, leave this place, we are making our B-roll footage count. Let me pray for us, and uh, then we'll get ready to go. Jesus, we're really grateful for what you've done so that we even have a shot at living the way you've created for us to live. I think often how sunk we would be if you hadn't done really all the heavy lifting but God, we also know that we have choices to make. And I pray that we would make wise, discerning, passionate choices as we go out from this place to put this into practice in the world around us. It's one thing to talk about that in this rather safe, pretty easy four walls. It's, a, it's another to take it outside. And that's where, that's where the power is anyway, God. So we just ask that as we, as we try to be faithful to who you have modeled for us to be, God, that we would uh, be quick to listen to your voice, that we would do the things you tell us to do. And at the end of our life, when we look back and maybe our whole life existed in this weird sliver of time and place where things were really easy for followers of Jesus, that we would still look back and say we were faithful, we looked like you, and we made sure that everybody knew who you were. That's what we want. Would you give us the strength and courage to do it? We love you. In your awesome name.
Amen. Thanks so much for listening. We hope you feel inspired and moved by what God is doing here at Crosspoint. Thank you.